This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Um, so today is a great day. I'd like to just check in. What is our relationship with God like? So the title of this uh, one-off preaching date is really face-to-face with God. And I was thinking about that and if I say you're coming face to face with God, what, what, what shows up for you? What are the feelings that come face to face? Do I want to be face to face with God? And uh, I assume that some of us are like, yeah, well, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, at three in the morning, face to face with God sounds like a pretty good idea. But then, on the other hand, face-to-face with God, I mean, who's showing up here? Is it that angry old man, or is it something else? Or, or am I, uh, you know, is it time for me to depart this mortal coil, or something like that? What does it really mean for us? So checking in about that, what I want to say just basically up front is, to be human is to be in touch with God. To be human is to be in touch with God. So dialing in our relationship with God is the same as saying it's dialing in and really becoming deeply and eminently human. So it's a great thing to think about. So I have a question for you to start. I'm going to put it up here. When is a time in your life when you have felt particularly close to God? Can you name a time? All right, in the back here. I'm going to come up with a mic so that everybody can hear. At the Christmas tableaus, and we happened to be right up front, and the the singing and the whole sphere was amazing. So at Christmas tableaus at church, that's cool. Wonderful, thank you. Anybody else? Yes. I'm still getting my phone buzzing like crazy, by the way. I have uh, moments when I feel close to God when I'm in nature, when I see the ocean, beautiful trees in the forest, and especially when I'm working in the garden, like a morning in June with my hands in the dirt, seeing all the things grow around me. I'm just very conscious of God's creation. How about when it's 100 degrees out and 100% you... No? Should we do one more before we go back? Anybody else? All right. I'm going back to work. So on my phone, I would say, catch Marcus. He kept the uh, room from going deaf with um, feedback. So anyway, I I was going to say a ton of texts have come in during childbirth when I've been bearing my children, holding my infant for the first time, that kind of thing. That is certainly a God moment. And then there's another theme here, and that theme is, oh, when life is really difficult, God has showed up for me. Life has been really, somebody said, when I was in detox, for example. Um, I'm just checking through here, lots of... Lots of kids, uh, kid texts. 
But when things are difficult in different ways, at three in the morning, at four in the morning, when I've been in crisis, when my job looks like it's going to end and I'm going to have to go out and do this crazy job search again, God shows up and gives me some comfort. When I'm feeling like my whole world of beliefs are being challenged and I'm not sure who I am or what I am and where I'm going, those also are kind of face-to-face with God moments. So I think that that's pretty cool. Now, I wanted just to tell you a little story here about a God moment that has made a huge impact on my life. And I've, I've had my own God moments, but I want to tell you about somebody else's God moment. So in this church, we call ourselves New Church or The New Church or New Church Live. And it's a church, a Christianity, whose theology is informed by this theologian from the 18th century. His name is Emanuel Swedenborg. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Swedenborg and his journey for just a moment, and let's see if it relates a little bit. So Swedenborg was born, he was actually the son of a Lutheran bishop, and it was at a time when the Lutheran church was really locked down. It was like, you believe this theology and it's pretty hard. And, and by the way, the priests of this church are the ones who administer the punishments when people break the law. It's the priests who get to do the punishment. I mean, it was really a pretty hardcore, difficult environment to live in. And, oh, also, when you paid your taxes, you didn't pay your taxes to the crown. You paid your taxes in Sweden in this, at this time. You paid them to the church. And so you can imagine how people were feeling about church and what church was all about and ministers. And, you know, ministers are basically these authoritarian figures in people's lives. And they were saying, you believe this way. And if you don't, by the way, you're breaking the law. So you're going to be in big trouble. So it was really, really controlled. It was locked down. And people were very, very unhappy, like the masses, the people, the uneducated. People were just like, this is a difficult environment to live in. And so church, even back then, was getting a bad reputation in Sweden. And by the way, it's done uh, tremendous damage to the life of uh, religion in Sweden today. There's hardly anybody who's religious because they're like, Oh yeah, that reminds me of this time in history. I don't want to have anything to do with it. So it's created, from an organizational perspective, a lot of difficulty about having church and talking people into coming into an environment that's actually uplifting. So here's Swedenborg growing up. Son of a bishop. Already you can see there's a little tension there. He is... Somebody who's incredibly intelligent. One of these people who's right out in the forefront of his time. In his adulthood, it's thought that he actually read every single book that was published and available in Europe at that time. Now, libraries were much smaller, but you can imagine that... So here's a guy who has basically exposed himself to the entire body of learning that was available to the Western world at that time. And he was on a trajectory. He was diving into mathematics. He was diving into 
uh, astronomy, trying to figure out new ways of navigation. He was inventing things. He started the Royal Academy of Sciences in Sweden, kind of modeled after Isaac Newton's Royal Academy in the United Kingdom, and he was becoming an international figure himself preparing to leave his mark like his contemporaries at that level in the scientific world, Leibniz, Newton, and others, he was preparing to leave his mark on the scientific world. That's awesome. And you can think, hmm, is there a little ego tucked into that notion? Well, I would say yes. So Swedenborg is in his 50s. He's pushing. He's trying to write about anatomy in the brain. He's trying to say, hey, you know, there's some connection. We're going to find the gland of the soul. Okay, that's kind of cool. Um, and he's going to describe the anatomic features of the soul. And he's looking through people's brains trying to figure it and trying to write about it and doing all this research and something starts to happen to him. First, in, in his observations of the anatomy that he's studying, he's, well, he's kind of not finding a soul. I mean, that's something I think we've, we've all realized by now that it's like there isn't that special gland or lobe of the brain that's the soul lobe. It's something deeper than that. So he's starting to realize that, that he's not going to make this scientific discovery that implants his name in the annals of history forevermore. And he's also starting to wonder himself, well then what is the soul if it doesn't exist with some kind of anatomic feature? I don't want to get too deep on you here, but what happens is basically he starts getting into a personal crisis about this because he's not going to make it. He's not going to be the famous person that he thought he was. And while he's diving deeper and deeper into this, I guess it's more of a spiral than dive, going into a crisis, he's journaling about this in a in just a normal journal, just like this, and talking about his experiences with it, his thoughts, and also recording his dreams. And he's becoming more and more anxious around it. In that context, it's almost like he starts thinking, wait a minute, I need to take a left turn in my career. I need to go off. I need to really study theology. Maybe my calling is about really looking at the Bible and what's behind the Bible and a dialogue and the connection between the Bible and spirituality, the connection between the Bible and a person's soul, and what it says about human life and what we're supposed to be doing in our life Oh, and by the way, nobody in Sweden has any respect for religion. So what does that say about me? That I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be basically looked at as a heretic. I may go to jail because I'm talking trash talk about this existing lockdown authoritarian militaristic church at this time. And people just aren't going to like me. What's that going to say about my legacy? And so he gets into a really deep and dark place. At that moment, in the middle of the night, he describes, and he's often Swedenborg writes in Latin because that is the intellectual language of, of Europe. 
everybody who's been through university reads and writes Latin, so that's how they communicate with each other. But he reverts back to the language of his mother, and he writes in Sweden this experience where it's in the middle of the night. He is in a dark place, and suddenly it's like he's thrown on the floor in anguish. He doesn't know what's up. He's crying, and all of a sudden he looks up into the face of God. Now I'd say into the face of the Lord. He's looking into the face of Jesus. He's looking into the face of this divinely human being. And he describes how that being is enveloping him with nothing but eternal, infinite, and human love and comforting him in his in this moment of, of crisis, but comforting him where that comfort, it's like it, it penetrates his shell that he's built for himself, and it just permeates every last piece of his humanity from the very externals to the very internals. It's an incredible moment. It's hard for me even to describe it. I'm lucky enough to be able to read Swedish, so I've read his own writing. You know, and, and to see it in, you know, in the language of his childhood is just, I don't know, it just raises the hair in the back of my neck, and yet I have trouble communicating that because it's hard to translate it from the Swedish into the English. It's just hard to cross that cultural barrier. But all I can say is I assure you it's an incredibly precious moment in this person's life. And he wakes up the next morning and he heads off in this brand new direction. He goes kind of head over heels into the theology. It's like he doesn't care anymore about his ego. He leaves it all behind and he works to develop what's regarded by most people as one of the most consistent theologies that's ever been articulated that's drawn out of the Christian tradition using the Bible, in that the, the ideology that he's expressing is complete, and he doesn't change his mind as he's going through different passages in the Bible. It's all consistent. It all holds together. It's one thought. And where does it all come from? It comes from this idea that God is not just human, but incredibly human. Let's just put up that slide, if we can, from Genesis. God created mankind in his, and can we say this, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's one of those statements, and it occurs right in the very beginning of Genesis, right in that creation story, but it's easy to kind of just gloss over it and keep on going. But God created man in his own image. So I could say to you, if you want to see what God's image looks like, it's really simple, just look, to, look at the person next to you, because that person is created in the image of God. And if you're feeling a little, uh, you know, like you want to challenge yourself a little more in this subject, go and look in the mirror, if you dare, 
And that person staring back at you is in the image of God, just like that person next to you. I think that's fantastic. You know, it's so easy to, to you know, develop the, oh, I got body image problems, or I've got, uh, you know, my own ego brokenness is saying, hey, I'm stupid, or whatever. But that person in the mirror, that person is just as much an image of God as that person next to you, or that person on TV, or anywhere else. And that is a great starting place. So just scrolling back, and I'm going to invite the band to come out because we're going to have our, our bucket song. But just scrolling back to that moment when God is looking at Swedenborg right in the eyes, and it's a face of just in complete, all-encompassing love, what I want you to do is when you think of the, hey, God, face-to-face, I get to be face-to-face with God, just invite the idea that it's not something that's intimidating, but rather you are looking at the most human expression of life possible, much more human than we are, and therefore much more loving, much more wise, much more compassionate, much more caring, much more having respect and regard for our long-term growth and trajectory. That is God, and he loves us completely with everything he is, so much so that when we say the infinite God, what we say is all of that infinity is directed exactly toward your spiritual eternal happiness from this moment through to eternity. He is going to be there for you. He is there for you. Yes, we don't always see him, but he is there for your life. Today, tomorrow, he will never leave you alone. He will always be there. He is there to lift you up and make you human, more and more human from this day, the next day, forevermore. So it's all about becoming human. And I would say the purpose of a church is to help people connect with that humanity because we all struggle with that. And the reality is there are things that stop us up, that block us from having that connection with God. And I think that the one primary way for me to characterize this and I may not have the whole picture here as I'm going into it, but we can't take all day, um, It's fear. So I have a slide here from Jan Martel about fear. I just checked that out. It comes from the life of Pi. And to read it, it says, I must say a word about fear. It's life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous adversary, how well I know. It has no decency, respects no law or convention, shows no mercy. It goes for our weakest spot, which it finds with unnerving ease. Isn't that creepy? It's creepy, but it's true. It's true. And I would say, okay, um, for me, I believe that fear is one of the primary ways 
we get blocked from feeling God's love, that it comes in and it's like this cement wall that gets poured that just keeps us back from God's presence. And, well, I mean, fear is weak compared with God's power, so I think that there's ways of getting through it. But what I would say is often when we are most clearly and completely connected with God, it's often when that fear, for one reason or another, is just not present. And it could be that it's not present because it's a uh, aha moment, a joyful moment, like a marriage moment, something like that. Or it's another moment, like where I often experience connection with God, is it's in the ICU, and things are so complicated and difficult that people actually just get past the fear because of the difficulty of the situation. And in those situations, it's like, wow, suddenly just the door is flung open and God is present. And we walk away from that situation with a deeper respect and understanding and connectivity with God, but also with our fellow fellow human beings. So as a pastor, as long as I've been visiting the hospital, I've always, always experienced that. And it's something that just, I never expected it. And it's this kind of miracle that came in. So what I want to ask, though, is what is the origin of that fear? And the way I like to um, articulate it is that that fear originates in an overpowered ego. So it's not just the ego. Everybody has an ego. Everybody has a sense of self. And sometimes that sense of self is working really appropriately. But sometimes our sense of self or who we are, our own identity, is overpowered. And that's where we get back into uh, biblical theology and the analogies that come out of the Bible. So we can throw up the next picture, please. And we have the serpent. Now remember, okay, I'm riffing on Genesis. This is back in the early Genesis. The serpent appears in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. It's a wonderful existence. Everything is idyllic and it's supposed to be beautiful. And by the way, this is all an analogy about human life. I don't personally believe that there was a Garden of Eden and that the earth was created in seven days and that kind of thing. But really, it's much more a... Um, beautiful tapestry that symbolizes human life and our interaction with God. And notice then, right in the third chapter of Genesis, we get into, oh, by the way, it's almost like God saying, oh, by the way, there are times where we get stuck and there are things that distract us from our relationship with God and indeed erode that relationship and make our lives more difficult. So when I see that picture of the serpent, I think of the serpent as a symbol of addiction. And that could be an addiction to a chemical substance, but it could just be an addiction to behavior. The serpent in the theology of the new church signifies or symbolizes a very, very powerful, externally motivated compulsion, 
And basically, it convinces us to believe in a lie that something, whether it be chemical or behavioral, something very, very external in nature is going to somehow make us very, very happy inside. So something in the outside of life is going to somehow impact our souls and our hearts and it's going to improve our happiness, when in reality, that's not going to happen. It might numb us, it might distract us, it might leave us, leave us away, but it's a trap that is present and has been present with humans since the very beginning of time, which is why this picture shows up in the Bible. Let's see the next slide. So there you have it. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And it's almost like, yeah, this serpent is powerful because our addictive personalities, our addictive behaviors have tremendous power and they can overwhelm our ego. And when our egos are overwhelmed, then fear becomes really a problem. It becomes present and distracting, and it and like it puts up the smoke screen so God can't can't be there, or the concrete, or however you want to put, want to say it. But uh, there's a lot in life. I think, especially in our Western world, where you know we have TVs in every room, we have cars, and you know, like if you're a guy person like me, you like cars and motorcycles and things like that. And it's easy to get kind of hyper focused on these external things and forget what life is really about. So fear becomes a byproduct of that. And and what happens? So I think of it like this. I think, I love my motorcycle so much that I'm going to pay attention to it instead of my family. I mean, this is a very simple, silly example, right? So if I actually act on that compulsion and I ignore my family, I'm exchanging something that offers a deep level of satisfaction for something that offers a very external material satisfaction and and really it's nothing more than an interruption and I don't get me wrong I love motorcycles I really do and I like using them but I like to try to use them in balance with the rest of my life so all the pieces fit together and that balance does not come from the motorcycle it comes from within So the scenario is, when I am in that place in my life, and it could be, by the way, fill in the blank, you can switch out motorcycle with, I love, well, it could be your drug of choice, it could be your behavior of choice, you know, fill it in. It works the same way. But when we're hyper-focused on that, and we try to have a conversation with God, it doesn't go very well, does it? It's like, well, God, I really do want to spend time with my motorcycle. I really want to ride it. God, keep me safe. I don't want to have a crash on my motorcycle. God, uh, take care of my family while I'm riding my motorcycle. God, No, God, I don't want to hear your reply to this. I'm talking here, okay, God? I'm telling you what I want, all right? And I just want you to do it. And the reason I mimic this a little bit is because it really is actually, I think, common 
that that is a kind of conversation we wind up having, and we, because of our ego and our overpowered ego, we tune out or turn down the volume of any reply that might be coming back, because that reply might be just healthier than our behavior, and and God might be suggesting that we change. And I'm afraid of change. I don't want to change, and I'm not sure what I'm going to look like if I do change. So can you see, start to see how the fear comes up? And I've seen this in a lot of different uh, contexts. You know, a different context, because I'm using kind of a silly example here, but a little bit of a deeper context is a friend of mine was sharing how they were having a health issue. A pretty serious, it was looking like a very serious health issue. And so, of course, they're going to the doctor and the doctors are giving them this test and that test and they're taking biopsies and doing ultrasounds and that's saying, well, you have to do this test and another test and all of these tests take you know, a long time to schedule and you can't schedule the next one until you get results from the last one, et cetera, et cetera. We all know how the health system is starting to work today. And the person was telling me, well, I can talk to God about this. God, let, let it not be this result. Or uh, God, heal me. Or God, whatever. But, but don't tell me, God, what's really going on. All right? Because I don't really want to hear it. And I'm not quite ready to adjust to what might be a new reality. So when, when I think of that example, I see, yeah, that is a much more serious kind of conversation that we're trying to have with God. And the reasons we are struggling with that, yes, they are fear, and they're real, and they're much more symbolic of a human being who is just a human being who's on a path of growth, who's not quite there yet, who's trying to really discover what it means to be connected with God, and like all of us, isn't always connected because some of these issues in our very human lives are difficult. And they suggest, well, maybe I don't want to go there. It wouldn't be my choice. And in fact, it wouldn't be God's choice. Because there are bumps in the road that God doesn't create for us. He's just trying to help us navigate them and grow through them so it's the internal that's growing, not the external. And so this is the problem. We have this serpent in our life. And that serpent convinces us to what I would say, eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is coming out of that story again. And what's being symbolized by that is, and the serpent says, if you eat of this tree, you can be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And I think really, what the way you could translate that is, the serpent is saying, well, if you eat of this tree, you can come into and believe this lie that you know everything, you know everything about what's good and everything about what's bad, and it all relates to what makes you happy in this external world. And by the way, that doesn't really work. That's, the li- that's a lie. So, And if it's a lie, it's not going to take you to a good place. What's a better way? 
A better way is to generate a connection with God. The theology for the new church says connecting with God is the starting point. It's the starting point of being a human being. I think that's really cool. I have a passage from the Gospel of John that I just wanted to refer to here. Here, John 3 says, A person can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. A person can, be, can receive nothing except it's given by God. What does that say about human life? What does that say about our ego? It says basically, yes, we have this feeling that life is our own, that we are self-determining. But the reality is much deeper than that. We are actually recipients of life. We receive life, and that life flows into us from God. So much so that another passage in the theology for the new church says this. It says, all wisdom, all intelligence, reason, and even knowledge are not from a person himself, but from the Lord. All reason, wisdom, intelligence, and knowledge don't come from yourselves. You're not just born with this innate ability with your brains, but it actually comes as a force from outside for you to use. Again, what does that say about your ego? What does it say about a human being? And what does it say about God? So uh, let's put up that last slide, if you would. Here's a what I think is a really cool statement, that partnership with a visible God is like seeing a person opening his arms, inviting you into his embrace. It's a very concrete, wonderful image about what God is and what God's intentions are for the human race. I like to speak when I'm dialoguing with atheists about God as really an articulation of love, that we're all really all talking about the same stuff. We're talking about love. And God has given you know, the Christian world this way of talking about love as in the form of Jesus or as in a divinely human form or you know, in different ways that look human because that love is completely and eminently human in form. And to the degree that we model ourselves so that we can receive that God stuff, we too start to become incredibly human. And because of that, we're able to do remarkable things and have a kind of relationship with other people that is, is outstanding rather than something that's purely external. So that, to me, is why it's important to start to connect with God and realize that, yeah, God offers us this human connection through all of this imagery that he's given us in the Bible, and that that allows us to relate to and use that divine life and energy in ways that are powerful in our lives. It allows us to overcome those fears, grow through those fears, cultivate that connection, move past that, 
but most particularly so that we can live in loving and connected ways with other people rather than living isolated, alone, dissociatively, and in ways that draw us apart from other people. Because human life does not exist in a vacuum. So we as individuals live to the degree that we are connected with other people and serving as recipients of God's life, being deeply and richly connected with God so that we can share that life with others. So just to close, I want to share with you, um, I do a fair number of weddings in, in my work these days, and so we do this process of premarital counseling. Uh, people like to think of it as boot camp, uh, although I would not like to think of it as boot camp. But the last piece of that counseling that I love to do with couples is to talk about relationship in terms of their relationship with God. And I make this an important point because God is the source of the love that they have in marriage. And what I say to them is this, and I realize that, you know, it certainly doesn't just apply in a couple relationship, but it it applies to every level of community that we could possibly dream up. And that is, if we start with our relationship and we look to build practices together where we're trying to bring out that which is in a person's heart and soul and build the relationship on what's inside rather than outside, what we're actually doing is modeling our relationship on the pattern that God demonstrated for us in the world, in that what he was doing while Jesus was walking on earth is he was interacting constantly with people, not how they showed up and looked externally, but he was interacting from what was motivating them, what they really cared about, what was really important to them, and trying to tie that and make a connection in with what is important to the universe, with what is important with that person, how can that person go deeper and be a loving person? And so to the degree that we connect with God in that way and model that by connecting with the people around us, not from externals, but trying to go to the heart, trying to figure out what makes that person tick. How can I serve the things that are deep with that person that are, that are sacred? It's like, actually, I'm serving God with that person. I'm bringing out the best. I'm trying to create the conditions for that person to thrive and have a deep connection with God. And in so doing, God is present with us. So my final scripture for you today is where two or three are gathered together. I am there in the midst of them. So where you are present with one or two other people and what you are trying to do is discover what is with God, with them, and bring it out and share it and develop it and honor it and respect it and create create the opportunities for that to grow and be articulated. God is there in that moment and God is there with you. And it's just like it was back going back to this story I told with Swedenborg. There he is 
There he is with infinite love for you. There he is completely compassionate and caring about your success and growing. There he is fully supporting your growth as a human being, preserving you to be who you are and helping draw you up so that you can only become more human, more you. And he's just looking at you with this gentle, wonderful smile. My wish for you is that you can have opportunities that are God moments like that. And maybe you don't see him face to face in the way that that dream was described. But you know he's there. And that the fear is pushed aside and you can be led forward with confidence, feeling like you, too, you get the opportunity to walk face to face with God. So that's my message for this morning. We're going to close with a prayer. We're going to have a little time for silent prayer together. You can uh, say the Lord's Prayer during that time if you want. Um, or you can pray for a person that's close to you, that's in need. You can use that time any way you wish. But I'm just going to start with a few words of prayer. Lord, we turn to you today first in thanks, because you can be present in our lives, reminding us that we are never, ever alone, and that you offer us a love that is transcendent and much bigger than any of the ways our ego gets caught up in externals. But you can be there gradually cracking us open and lifting us up and healing us, healing us in ways that we can't possibly imagine. Lord, keep us mindful of your big picture, not just a few years that we have together on earth, but your big picture that includes eternity, includes a life in heaven, includes relationships that last and grow for years and years. Help us, O Lord, participate with other human beings in compassionate and deeply connected ways so that we can share your life with others. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv.